Good morning, everybody. He's in Florida, and we're here freezing to death. But uh, we're glad. I'm so glad you got out today to uh, to be with us. A bunch of our team are down at a big Wesleyan Pastors Conference in Orlando. It's a, they do it every four years, and hundreds and hundreds of pastors and leaders get together. So expecting them to come back uh, refreshed and ready to roll. Uh, I've, Janet and I have been here back here five months now, and we're just loving getting the opportunity to connect with so many, reconnect, and to meet so many of you, loving being a part of this young team and learning from them, loving uh, coming in here every week and hearing this, this uh, band and these people lead us in worship and Pastor, Pastor Brent's messages, loving that, loving being, getting into the book of Mark. You know, we were in trending in the fall which was uh, so appropriate and, and had so many great things in it. Tend, when you're in a series like that, it tends to be a little bit random, you know, topically. But when you get back into a book, you're more uh, driven by what's coming up next in the text. And there's something so healthy and good about that. And we're, we're going to forge our way through the book of Mark. I was sitting there last night before the service and... I was thinking back to uh, the, the series that we did here at King's on the book of Luke a bunch of years ago, and to remember hearing and listening to those messages, uh, it was great, and so we're, we're going to dive into that. Uh, we're, we're building a house these days, and uh, I'm a pastor, not a tradesman, but I'm trying to get, you know, be a part of what's going on. It had a lot to do with getting that foundation ready, and you know, it, it, that's, a, that's a pretty bigger deal than I realized. I built a house years ago when I was a kid, our first home, and it seemed to be a pretty simplistic deal there then. But man, as we got into that and got realizing about, you know, placing that home on the property and, and looking at the lay of the land and realizing how important it is to get it sitting at the right elevation because you've got drainage. We're kind of on a side hill and water's coming down off of that. And to have it just right so the, so the water will run and it's got somewhere to go and then getting those footers in in the right spot and getting your, your sewage and your water and stuff under that footer at the right time and then the walls go up and you realize the inside, you think it's over, but it's not over, right? Because you've got to prepare the inside of the, of the, uh, of the home there and, and uh, getting that exactly right. I remember we were walking around with a transit every couple of feet and just to the eighth of the inch to try to get that exactly exactly right so the styrofoam can lay on there and then the guys can wheel concrete over it and get your vapor barrier down and get that floor poured and you think we're done well we're not done though because again you got to go outside and you got to you got to fix all the you got to patch all those holes where the concrete ties were and then you got to put on the waterproofing and you got to get the drain tile in and the drain rock and you got to back you know like it's a big deal you think I thought we were going to build a house. We can't even get the foundation done here, right? It just seemed to go on and on and on. But here's the deal. If you, it, it, it may seem like a foundation. It may seem just like a basement, but it's foundational. And if you don't get it right, you're going to pay later, if you know what I mean, right? You got to make sure you get that. And we're, we're going to talk about something this morning that's coming up next here in Mark that is truly foundational, and it's something that takes longer sometimes than you think it's going to take. It's a bigger process than uh, you might anticipate. It, it has more pain associated with it sometimes than you wish. So we're going to get there. Uh, I, I do, uh, I, I want to, let, well, let's read. Let's, let's go into Mark 1, and we're going to read uh, from verse 4 to verse 11. So it's going to catch us a little bit up where we were last week. 
and put us in context. So uh, grab your Bible. It's on the screen for you. This is Mark 1, chap, uh, verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside, all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time... Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Just before we finish that last couple of lines, you see classic Mark here, like he's the master of brevity. Uh, he includes some things, you know, like this thing about the, uh, Jesus being in the desert with the wild animals and the angels attending him. You get a little, get a little uh, insight into what was going on there that the other gospel writers don't give you, even though they give you more detail than Mark does. And then you get to those last couple of verses there. After John was put in prison, which is a whole story in and of itself, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. And I want to start by asking you this morning, when is the last time that you gave uh, much thought to the state of your soul? You know, because your soul is not just something that kind of lives on after you, but it's a part of you. It's, it is who you are. It's the most important thing about you. Your soul is your life. And, and, and we know those of us who have a soul know that a soul can be fractured. It can be, uh, it can be whole or you can feel like your soul's in pieces. It can be at rest. It can be in turmoil. It can be flourishing. It can be dying. Life, if you live very long, life tends to take its toll on your soul. And here's another truth about the soul. Even the people who have been most diligent about caring for their soul, even the people who have done their best to walk uprightly in the face of God and kind of cared for the things that ought to be cared for, even those people get into places where you feel like you're losing a grip on your soul. One of my favorite authors, Gordon McDonald. Gordon was a pastor of a church down in the Boston area. Significant church, but he had a, he kind of, he crashed. And he was out of ministry for quite a while, and he, he kind of reemerged out of the ashes of that and did a lot of his best writing and teaching as a result of that. And one of the big books in my life was his book, uh, Restoring Your Spiritual Passion. And in that book, he listed a number of conditions that, kind of can describe the state that people, even dedicated, devoted Christians, get into with their soul. He talked about the dried out condition, you know, like your spiritual life becomes like a desert. He talked about the distorted condition. You make some goofy decisions or, you know, you, you believe a lie or you live in unforgiveness or something and suddenly you get into a distorted reality spiritually. He talked about the devastated condition. 
something kind of, you know, T-bones you in life and you, it just totally wipes you out and, and events have taken a toll. You're kind of living under the circumstances in the devastated condition. He talks about the disillusioned condition. I, I like to describe that, you know, that's like the trial of your faith. You have lost faith. You are in a position where you're, you feel like you're losing your ability to believe uh, in, in, when you're disillusioned. He talks about the defeated condition. When you're in trouble in your soul, you have no victory, no power. Temptation has turned into sin. You're, you're, you're not making it. He talks about the disheartened condition. When, you, when you've lost hope and there's no sign of the joy of the Lord. And when you're in some of that, it's like... One condition all merges into another. Truth is that people who follow Jesus, we're not unlike the children of Israel. Have you ever seen the, the journey of the children of Israel described as that circle, you know? It's like up here, they're, like, they're on top of things, and like God's good, and man, we're blessed. And then over here, they get, they get forgetting that, and they, they kind of get looking left and right and get tempted. Look at that sin over there, and they start drifting and, and then down here, man, God judges them. Pow! And he, God hammers them, and they get in trouble. And then I'm back here, it's, oh, thank you, Lord. You know, thank you for helping us. And then up here, God's good, and man, everything's great. And then all of a sudden, wow, look at that sin. And then pow! And then, you know, they're back. And that, that cycle that the children of Israel live through, you read the Old Testament, you see it. It's like, will you never learn, people, kind of a thing. But we're not, we're not too far from that, really. That's pretty descriptive of sometimes how our life can go. And, and repentance is the starting point. And the title of this message is Reaching Repentance. I want to suggest to you, as you see in the words of John, as the kingdom is unleashed, and as you see in the words of Jesus, as he stepped into his three years of earthly ministry, that repentance is the foundation. It's foundational. If you don't get it right, if you, don't, if you don't, don't take care of foundational repentance issues, you're into a world of trouble in a whole lot of other areas. It was on the mouth of every Old Testament prophet. You go back and, and go through the pages of the Old Testament, Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and all of them, they were preaching the same message. You, re, you better repent. It's a one-word message. And, and why? Because they knew that all of the good things that God wants to release into their life, just like that circle the children of Israel were in. All the good that God wants to give is predicated on, on our humility of spirit and our willingness to, uh, to repent. And it wasn't just the Old Testament. I mean, John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In Mark chapter 6, verse 12, it says, Jesus sent the disciples out. It says, they went out and preached that people should repent. You remember the words of Jesus when he said, you can finish it with me, I tell you there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who don't even think they need, uh, they need to repent. And then Peter gets up in the birth of the church, you know, in, the, in Acts chapter 2, and he preaches the very first message in the church, and it's like, repent. And the next Sunday he comes back in Acts chapter 3, and he preaches the very, pastors aren't allowed to preach the same message two weeks in a row. Like he preaches the very same thing. You better repent. Repeat. He said it in Acts 3.19. This is a great verse. And it really is kind of central to what I hope you leave with this morning. He said this, repent and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Because repentance leads to change, which leads to revival in your heart. 
And I don't know if you've heard the word revival. You know, you, know so you can think of what it means to be revived. But revival is an old word around the evangelical church world. I mean, back when I was a kid, we used to have what we called revival meetings, sometimes several times a year. It was like the whole life of the church would stop, the bus would pull over to the side of the road, and we'd have this meeting. We'd bring in a guest evangelist or something, you know, and everybody would kind of get called back to God, and there would be a lot of repenting and a lot of renewal, and you'd be praying for, you know, for sinners that never had allowed Christ into their life to kind of get caught up in that. There's been some amazing periods of revival in history. That's why the Wesleyan church kind of identifies with John Wesley, because John Wesley was one of the ones who kind of started this this unbelievable revival in Great Britain when Great Britain was at its one of its lowest points morally and ethically, and, and the Wesley revival swept through Great Britain and over to the Americas, and we, we, picked up, we picked up his name. Definition of revival is renewed interest after a period of indifference or decline. I, I uh, listened to some podcasts. One of them is Kerry uh, Newhoff, who's a... Who, uh, is having a great influence on pastors and churches these days. He's a personal friend of Pastor Brent's, in fact, uh, from a church up in Ontario. He says, revival is dead. Revival doesn't apply anymore. And I understand. His point's well taken. I mean, that, that's sort of a method that doesn't apply. Uh, it, it, it doesn't apply anymore. I also listened to James McDonald from Harvest Church in Chicago, and he he's like this fiery Baptist preacher guy. I love, I love his, his way of communicating. I loved his insight on revival, though, because he said that, that in connection with this revival thing, he said the church today always wants to put the emphasis on the process. You know, God's at work in our lives. We're on a journey. We're on a faith journey. It's, a, it's an unfolding process. He says we're all about the process, and we've neglected the crisis. And when he talked about revival and repentance, he kind of highlighted the, the issue of of the need of crisis, like, you know, when the prophets stood up and called the people to repent, it was like, you better repent, because if you don't repent, like, the Syrians are going to come in here and wipe you guys out, right? He, he, he called the people to the crisis of that. There's a crisis na nature of revival. It's kind of a, a call to action. There's an urgency about it. And as I think of my life, I mean, two of my defining moments in my journey, man, it had crisis all over it. I remember, you know, as a rebellious uh, teenager, I, my dad was a pastor. I had the church thing to the, you know, up to here, and I was doing my best to avoid it all. And I remember how when I finally humbled myself in the sight of God, like it was like, I just like felt, if you don't do this tonight, you are, you're in big trouble, buddy. Like I just, God just brought me to this point where it's like, I have got to, I have got to let Christ into my life. And then I remember as a university student, I was studying for ministry and I, I was kind of, I was in a mess really in my mind and in my spirit and everything I was trying to do wasn't working and I, I just couldn't seem to live the life. And I remember, I remember in a moment, in a time of, it was really spiritual crisis coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I cannot live this life on my own. If you don't help me, if you don't, if, if there isn't something more you have for me to help me make this and live this like I was desperate for him and it was what I believe prepared the way for him to fill me with his spirit 
That was a crisis moment in my life. And I want to say to you that there's a reason that that the prophets and, 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 and the disciples and John the Baptist and Jesus and Paul, there's a reason they, they talked about, about repentance. Paul said it in Acts 17.30. He said, God now commands all men everywhere to repent. This idea of, you might say, well, I didn't know it was that important, really, but I want to say this to you. Imagine the tidal wave of God's blessing that is unable to be released on the world and on the church and on people because they resist God by their unwillingness to repent. Imagine what would happen in the kingdom if there was this suddenly this brand new spirit of repentance across the church. What, what would God do? What would God do in churches? What would God do in lives? What would God do in marriages? What would God do in families? There's something about Repentance, and I want to jump to Second Corinthians chapter seven. There's a bunch of—I mean, we could go in a bunch of directions when you think about repentance. But as we spring off of Jesus' words that you know that he, he caught that he he went out and said the kingdom of God is here, and he calls people to repent and believe. I want to jump to Second Corinthians chapter seven because there's this little pithy little passage of scripture there where Paul drills down on repentance. I want to read it first. It begins in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. He says this, Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I'll, I'll explain that, I do not regret it. Even though, though I did regret it, I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended and were not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. That's a big, big statement. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. I want to unpack that a bit. So he's writing this letter to the church in Corinth. My dad was a district superintendent. In other denominations, you'd call it a bishop. He, he was that for, I, I think, like 30 years. And so in my growing up days, I don't, he, he was a pastor before that, but I don't remember him as a pastor. I remember him as a district superintendent. So we went to a local church, but he didn't go with us because he was out at all these churches traveling around and doing what bishops do, you know. And he had this oversight of the churches. But I, I, do, I, I hardly remember hearing him preach because I wasn't there. But I do remember picking up that as he traveled and dealt with churches, that different churches had different reputations. You know, there were some churches that he seemed to love, love, and you could just knew it was like stuff was happening. And, and there were other churches like they were always problems. There was bickering and fighting and stuff going on, you know, just that, that wasn't right. And, and Corinth was one of those churches. It was a problematic church. And Paul, it looks like, had written four letters, at least, to the church in Corinth. And, and in one or two of them, the ones we don't have record of, he was beating up on them. He was saying, like, you guys are doing this stuff. I don't know whether it was infighting or sexual sin or what it was, but there was junk going on in the church in Corinth. And Paul is saying, cut it out. Like, you, you can't be doing this. And then in verse 8, he says... Even if I made you grieve by my letter, I don't regret it. It's a good thing to feel sorrow, he said, to be grieved by the wrong choices. But he says, it's almost like you get the feeling, he's like, man, was I too hard on them? 
It made me think about sometimes with my kids, you know, when I disciplined my kids. I had kids growing up, you know, and I would spank them. Come on. And sometimes I would spank them, and I would think, man, should I have done that? I kind of, you know, I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, well, let me, let me rephrase that for, for you, some of you guys today. Did you ever kind of have mixed feelings and wonder if you did the right thing when you hollered to your children, one, two, three? <laughs> Little senior sarcasm there, sorry. <laughs> but that's, what, that's kind of what Paul was feeling there. He's like, man, I think pastors feel that sometimes and with a message that they preach. They think afterwards, man, was that, you know, did, I, was that, did I do that right? Did I come down too hard on them there? And, and, he, and Paul is going through this, but I'm, you know, he said, he really said, even if you felt bad about what I said, even if it hurt, even if it made you grieve, he said, I, I'm, I may have mixed feelings about it, but I'm not unhappy about it. I think I did the right thing. I mean, anytime you discipline someone, you discipline, there are people who don't discipline their children because they don't, they can't stand the heat, right? It's too much hassle. It's too, it's, it's too, the, the feelings are uncomfortable. Paul says, might've made you feel uncomfortable, but I, I don't regret it because of what it accomplished. Now, let's get a definition in front of us for repentance. If you Google repentance, you will get this. Repentance is the act of repenting. Like, thanks, Google, right? Look a little further. There's a bunch of, of definitions there. One is to feel or show that you're sorry for something bad or wrong that you did and you want to do it right. I mean, you, you know what repentance is. It, it, it's, 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 it, there's a bunch of aspects to it. Uh, Wikipedia says this, repentance is actually, is the activity of reviewing one's actions and feeling contrition or regret for past wrongs, which is accompanied by a commitment to change for the better. That's a better definition. But repentance is change. It's change in me. It's not change in my spouse. It's not change in my employer. It's not change, you know, in my kids. It's not change in my church. It's change in me. And if you, if you do a little digging around in a dictionary of theology on the word repentance, you'll see that repentance in the Old Testament had this kind of uh, uh, ritualistic aspect to it. Like it was a corporate deal. The people, the, the people as a whole would, re, would be called to repentance. It's kind of like the, the, the uh, 21 days of prayer and fasting. You know, Pastor Brent, he's called a fast. He's called us to this. This is something we're doing together. That's kind of what repentance was in the, in, uh, in the Old Testament. And repentance was also prophetic in the Old Testament. As I've mentioned, it was like the prophet standing up and says, hey, God told me to tell you, if you don't smarten up, this is going to happen, right? It, it had that kind of angle to it. There were, there's a couple, several words for repentance uh, in the Hebrew. One is the word nacham, and it's, it's a word that ta- gets to this all, like the grief, the lament, the, oh, it makes me feel, oh. It's that, it's that deal and another word is that word S-H-U-B-H, shub, I don't know how you say it, but it's the word for genuine repentance. It's like the prophet said, you know, you need to repent and you need to, it needs to be the real thing. Turn up the lights, guys, and turn around and see that, that mural that's been hanging on the wall here for, I don't know, 20, 25 years. It's right back there. And uh, I, want, I want us to read it together. It's Chronicles 714. Let's get it up far enough that we can see it. Uh, and let's read it this morning. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin 
and heal their land. That's that word, S-H-U-B-H. It's the word for real, genuine repentance. And you get into the New Testament, into the Hebrew, and there's a word, metaneo. Uh, metamelamei, which is, which is get, get a load of this. It's, it's the word, it's kind of like nasham in the Old Testament. It expresses the like, Ugh, I feel bad about this. It's that word. It's interesting to me to note that that's the word they talked about Judas feeling, right? Judas felt badly about what he had done, but most biblical scholars think he didn't feel badly enough to really repent, right? But he did feel badly about it. He had a, he had a level of regret. That's, that's, one, that's one of those words. And then the word metaneo, which is the word most people, if I asked you, what does the Bible, what, what does repentance mean in the Bible? Most of you would say it means to turn and go in a different direction. You're going this way, and I'm going to turn and go this way. And, and, and that, that's right. That it's, it's that word. It's the equivalent of the Old Testament term, uh, turn. That's the word John the Baptist used when he said repent. He said, change your direction, turn around, go a different way. That's, that's, uh, that's what the apostles used in, in most of their references to repent. That, uh, that's kind of the, the correct and the right word. I, one of the things I did getting ready for this, this today, this weekend... I read an old John Wesley sermon from 1767 where he was dealing with the issue of repentance. And it was fascinating to me because the thing he was talking about in that, he was saying that everybody thinks that repentance is all, is, is, should come into play when you first, like it's about when you first begin as a Christian. You need to repent of your sins and ask Christ to forgive you. And it needs to be real, genuine. But he said that a real follower of Jesus never runs out of the need to repent. And he said, some people resist talking about repentance to people who are mature in their faith because they think that that negates grace, that somehow if you think you need to repent, then you don't fully understand how great God's grace is. But Wesley said that a real, a diligent follower of Jesus always understands that, that they need to live with a spirit of repentance, that repentance puts you in a position to fully appreciate God's grace. And it keeps you sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Like his, I loved what, in fact, I was so taken with what he said, I almost wanted to turn this message into exploring that issue, you know, of, of, of it. But, but it, it really, it, it encompasses the whole scope. And I think John and Jesus were certainly looking at repentance in, in, the, in those initial stages. So I want to quickly, as we finish up this morning, I want to I give to you from this passage of Scripture, I want to pull out some things that, that I think are kind of uh, evidences of repentance. They're marks of genuine biblical repentance. It's like, this is how you can tell if a person is really repented. And, and I want you to stop and think, you know, you, like you, there is evidence in a person's life of what's going on. Like if I hung out with you for a few, if you said you repented, you came to me and said, Pastor, you know, uh, this is what's going on, and I've, this is, I've made this decision, and blah, blah, blah. If I hung out with you, I would be able to observe you and tell whether what you said had really happened in your heart. You know what I'm saying? Like, you can see, there is evidence, and that's what, that's what Paul is talking about here. Uh, in Acts 26.20, just to give you a, a, another look at that, in Acts 26.20, 
Paul preached that the people should repent and turn to God and, perf- and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. The King James says, uh, perf- uh, the King James says, perform deeds appropriate to repentance. Like if you say you've repented, then it ought to show up, you know what I'm saying? In, in your life. Uh, John the Baptist, if you look at the John the Baptist story in Luke, there's where John the Baptist looks at people and says, you brood of vipers. Like you get a feel for what he was really like as a preacher. You brood of vipers. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And he goes on and talks about the axe is already at the root of the tree. And he said, he basically says, if the, if the root is repentance, you're going to see the fruit. Right? There's evidence of re- repentance. And you see these uh, brought together. So let's jump into this very quickly. Number one is this, and, w- and this is from the Second Corinthians chapter seven portion. If you've really repented, you'll feel regret for what you've done. You'll feel regret <coughs> for what you've done. Notice verse nine. He says, "You became sorrowful as God intended." He calls it a godly sorrow or grief. You had a godly grief, not a worldly grief. Hang with me here. Because what that means is, if you've really repented, there's going to be some internal hurting. You're going to feel badly about it. There's going to be some anguish of soul. I remember a buddy of mine when we were in Bible college together, and this guy came to Bible college to study for the ministry. He was married. Janet and I used to hang out with him and his wife. And I remember he came to me one day and he said, Don, I just want to tell you, I'm leaving her. I said, what? He said, I'm leaving her. He said, and in fact, I'm leaving her and I'm going with her. And he gave the name of another student at the college. I said, what, you're kidding me, right? He said, no. He said, I, I don't love her and, and we're in love and I'm leaving her and I'm going with her. And I said, man, you can't, you can't do that. Like, what are you doing? And I'm trying to talk some sense into my friend. And he said, no, 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 no. He said, don't even talk to me about it. I am doing this. And I said, well, what about, the, what about God? What, you know, what, how can you do this? And he said, he said, I know this is wrong, but I'm going to do it. And after, we, after I leave her and we get married, then I'm going to ask God to forgive me, and he will. I have never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that. Like that... Like he had, he kind of, he had his theology all worked out that, you know, God is so merciful, so full of grace, right? I don't know. I mean, it's his problem. I hope, he, I hope he's found repentance and he's actually still with that other girl, right? I, I, I don't know, but I know this. You can't kind of goof around on that. If it's real repentance, it isn't something that you kind of plan. It's gotta, there's got to be some, some meat to it. There's got to be some regret for what you do. In fact, everybody that we see in scripture that got any got close to God at all. I mean, they felt terrible about themselves, you know. Abraham talked about uh, being, uh, when, he, when he came face to face with God, he was like, I'm but dust and ashes. And Job was like, I repent, you know, I, I, re- I despise myself. He used that phrase. And you know, Isaiah, remember Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up? What did he say? Woe is me, right? John, the revelator, you know, saw the vision of, of Jesus and he fell at his feet as though dead is the way the scripture. I mean, what's that about? It's, it's the fact that you, when you come up in your, in your sinfulness, when you get a, a sense of God's holiness, you don't feel good about things. I mean, you feel, you, you realize how much trouble you're in and how, how, how much mercy you need from him. And that's an evidence of 
that's an evidence of, of real, real grief. And the problem with having notes is when you get lost in the notes, you kind of got to find out where you are. And we're supposed to be going on to number two, but where's number, where is number two? We're not to number two, because I'm supposed to give you one more illustration. Let me tell you, give me another illustration about, about not real grief. When I was a kid, how many know Pastor John Simons? Uh, Pastor John's father-in-law, Millard Mitchell, had a cottage down around the corner from where my mom and dad's cottage was, and I used to spend the summers there. And he had these beautiful, about four or five feet by, by two or three feet, uh, shutters, winter shutters, all, you know, at a tongue and groove, all nice. And my buddies and I, we were like eight or ten or something. We got those shutters, we carried them off into the woods, and we built this awesome camp out of these shutters, <laughs> right? Built the camp, then we went down to the beach and found this area where there was clay, and we dug up buckets of clay, and we, we didn't want the camp to leak in the winter, so we, all around the edges, we put clay all in there, right, and covered it all with a brush pile, and it was awesome. And then my mother found out about it, and it was like, we're going to Millard Mitchell's, and you're going to apologize, right? So I just remember having to knock on that door, you know, and there's Millard, and I'm having to tell him what I did. Truth is, like, I was sorry, but I was sorry that my mother found out. I was sorry that I had to go down there. I was sorry that my camp was ruined. I was sorry I had to pull all the nails out and, all, you know. And truthfully, it was really, it was more about his gracious response to me that was the memory about how he dealt with me. But, man, like, you, if there's real repentance... There's got to be some anguish of spirit, and I think that's the end of number one. Let's go on to number two, and number two is this. The second mark uh, is, is when you sincerely repent, you feel repulsed by your sin. Like, you don't only feel, you don't only feel, not only feel bad about what you've done, but like, you don't, there's nothing good about this sin. You're not drawn to it. You are repulsed by it. Uh, it says in this, verse 11, it says, see what godly sorrow this has produced in you. The King James says, behold what sorrow has been produced. Like, if you have repented, it'll be written all over your face. Like, it, you, you have a different attitude towards your sin. The, it use, he uses the word earnestness. There's an increased sense of urgency. You know, it's like if you have truly repented and you're in a service and you've been, you've been in sin and God's called you to repentance and you're really feeling repentance in your heart. It's like, okay, stop preaching. Give the altar call. I'm ready to deal with this. Like, I don't ever want to have anything to do with this again. Like, it's the total opposite of what my friend was thinking back there in Bible college. There's a sense of repulsion to the sin. Sin is repulsive to you. It's like the prodigal son is like the ultimate biblical illustration. He's away. He's partying. He's got the money. Everything's good, and then, it, and then everything isn't good. And he's in the pigsty, and he's wanting, he's so hungry, he wants to eat the food the pigs are eating. And it, the scripture says he comes to his senses, and he says, what the heck am I doing here? I could be home with my dad and at the farm and with all the blessings, and I'm here with the pigs. Like, that's the moment. Like, there's nothing about being down there that looked good anymore. And that's, that's a mark of real repentance. You you have regret for your sin. You're repulsed by your sin. And the third mark of the repentance is this. You feel responsible to make it right, to do something about it. This is, this is a difficult part. I mean, well, they're all difficult, but this is, this is, this is, this is tough. And, and what I'm talking about is real repentance gives a sense of responsibility for restitution. 
Like, listen to these words. This is verse 11. See what this godly sorrow produced in you? This, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. And, and when real repentance is happening in your life, there is a sense of responsibility to fix the fallout of your sin. You know, like you need to take some action on this. Uh, this fall, was it, when the, the Me Too thing happened, you know, and it was all over. Harvey Weinstein started it off. And then they, they were falling like dominoes, right? But you haven't heard any of them Hardly any. I don't, I don't know whether there's been any. There's certainly been none that the media has grabbed on that have said, you know what, you're right. I should not have done that. I shouldn't have acted that way. I, I mean, I don't know whether they're all guilty. You know how that goes. It's been just like a, an accusation fest, and I know that all that, but, but truly, you don't have, you're hearing from many of them saying, you're right. I was wrong, right? It hasn't happened. Then you, then you did you catch the, the news this week? The uh, the driver of the truck of the hum- that, that was the accident in Humboldt. In fact, I, wanted to, I wrote his name down because he deserves honor. His name is Jazz, Jazz Karat Sidhu. And he pleaded guilty in the accident. There was no sign that he was drinking or on drugs or pl- playing with his phone, but he went through the stop sign, right? And he said, he said, I did not want to put the families who have already been through all this agony, I did not want to put them through the agony of a trial. I'm guilty. And, and the reporter interviewed one of the dads outside the courtroom, and the dad had had a boy killed in the accident. <clears throat> and the dad said, said, that was all I needed to hear. He said, I don't care if he gets three days or three years or 30 years. He said, the, 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 the penalty, whatever, the punishment is irrelevant to me. I needed to hear him admit that he was wrong. Right? There was a willingness to own it and to step into it. What, the scripture says, what eagerness to clear yourselves. Zacchaeus is the poster boy there, the biblical poster boy, right? He, he, says, he's, he says he's repenting to Jesus, and he says, he says uh, if I've cheated any, how did it go? If I've cheated anybody, uh, I'll get, he says, I'll give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody, I'll repay them four times, right? And Jesus said, I'm going to your house, right, for lunch, right? I mean, it was obvious. What eagerness to clear yourselves. I think this is big, folks. Like, I don't want to mess with you here, but I, I really think this is big. I think this is part of the process. This is owning your own stuff. And you so often hear people who had an awful crime committed against them, an offense committed against them. And it's like, I just want to hear them say, I'm sorry, right? There's so much power in that in relationships, and there's power in it with God. I mean, I've had occasion with people that have come to Christ, and that you, you know that they're, they've got, they feel awful about the, their life and their sin, and they want God, and, you know, sometimes I've had occasion to actually go, like, almost like repeat these words after me, dear Lord, please forgive me for, I'm sorry that I, like, there's something powerful about saying the words and, and identifying it and, and owning it. You say, well, give me, how does that work in our life? Well, I'll give, there's lots of examples. Like real repentance shows up. Like you get on the phone and you say, Dad, this is Don. And I need to tell you that 
I'm sorry for, right? It's like you make the drive across town and you knock on Millard Mitchell's door, right? And you, you do the thing, like you say the words. Like, and I know a bunch of you have been, you know, a lot, this isn't, a lot of you have experienced this. It's hard. It's, it's hard to do that, but it, it's an evidence of real repentance. Watch out for people. Watch out for yourself when you act like you want to repent, but you're unwilling to, to, to take the step of, of making it right. And the good news is, I mean, if Millard Mitchell was able to forgive me, you know, when you come to God and you confess to God and you, you verbalize your wrongdoing and admit, humbly admit your need of forgiveness, I mean, God just, it's like a river of grace that rolls out on you. You know, that's the, that's the beauty of the gospel. And it really brings us to our last thing here. And it's it, the, the fourth evidence of revival. You regret, you regret your sin. You're repulsed by your sin. You feel responsible. And the last one is repentance leads to a sense of revival towards God. I mean, it's, it's after the other side of it. Like this rushing waterfall of grace hits you. This sense of relief. I, I remember watching the old film of of uh, Pilgrim's Progress, the great Christian classic, and, and Pilgrim is climbing up the hill, and he's got this big pack on him, and he's fighting to get up the hill in the story, and the way they visualize it, he gets, he gets to God, and God forgives him, and that pack falls off and rolls down the hill. You can just see it happening. Like there's, a sense of, there's such a sense of relief and release, and, 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 and a person kind of feels that in their their heart. The scripture uses what longing. There's this sense of being inclined again towards God. The scripture says what concern. And repentance leads to this rekindling of your love for God. It's why I wanted to say to you at the beginning, have you thought much lately about the state of your soul? That when you're in the devastated condition or the disillusioned condition or the disheartened condition, you know, or the distorted condition or whatever, when you're there, it's, it's, it's a sense of your standing before God, your willingness to call upon him and humble yourself in his presence. It's the prodigal saying, man, I'm going back home. Like, you know, I was listening to coming in this morning, man. I was listening to Chuck Swindoll on the Christian radio station teaching on this. It was, it was weird. And he was saying about the prod, he said, don't be too quick to chase people who have hit bottom. He was talking about your kids, you know. Don't, don't, save, don't try to save them from the consequences of their pain. And he said the, fa- the, the prodigal father didn't chase the son, but he waited for him. He looked for him. And after pain had done its work, right, the son was ready to repent, and he, he was drawing attention to that. Let me, let me close. The team's going to come, and we're, and we're going to sing. And uh, <clears throat> as they sing... You may be here this morning and you, you may need to pray and uh, this is a beautiful place to do it. Someone who can pray with you and counsel you and help you and believe for you and believe with you. I, wanna, I, I, I felt like to close though with two, I didn't know what to call these, two warnings, two reminders, two, I don't know, a couple of things I want to just tack on this for you to think about though as you, as you kind of think about repentance, real repentance in your life. You remember Lance Armstrong, the the uh, cyclist that was, has been so famous. And you remember now how that all developed. I mean, he was like a worldwide personality. He's winning all these races, people. He was at the start of the anti-doping, you know, thing that swarmed over the Olympics and everything. Because people were saying, 
how in the world could he be as good as he is? Like, surely he's got to be taking something. He did an ad for Nike. This was like 20 years ago. And, and this is what it said. He said, Lance Armstrong in the commercial said, listen to this. This is my body. I can do whatever I want to it. I can push it, study it, tweak it, listen to it. Everybody wants to know what I'm on. What am I on? I'm on my bike, busting my butt six hours a day. What are you on, right? I mean, he was, he was saying, no, wait, I'm not, I'm not doping here, right? I'm working. That was his stance. And you know how it developed. I mean, eventually, like it was proven, and he was basically stripped of his medals, and he was in disgrace in the, in the sporting community. Why did I tell you that? I tell you that to say this. In a person, in all of us, there is this, there is this powerful urge to justify ourselves. Like if, if you, if the Spirit of God is trying to, you know, put his finger on something or, you know, draw your attention to something, say, you gotta, you got to take care of this. You've got you to do this. You've got to fix this. Whatever it is. I mean, if you're feeling, if you're feeling like a sinner in need of a Savior, the Spirit of God is saying, that's you, buddy, you know. You're the one that needs that. When you are experiencing that, there is this surge of self-justification that rears up. Like Lance Armstrong, isn't he? that's you and that's me in the eyes of God. And even with people, it's like, yeah, but she, she shouldn't have done what she did. And I've never said anything back to her because blah, blah. You know, like, what is that? Is this, there's this, as humans, there's this self-justification. And you've got to watch for that. And I just felt like I needed to add that on. Here's the second. That's a word picture. Lance Armstrong, right? The second word picture uh, is a picture of uh, Gannett Rock Light. Uh, it was built in 1831. It's nine, about nine miles off, offshore out, on the, out at the mouth of the Bay of Fundy off the other side of Graham and Ann. It's, uh, it's, the, it's the second oldest and the most exposed lighthouse in Canada. 91 feet high, and at low tide, which is there, there's about an acre of ground. And uh, Donald M. Wilson was the light keeper there from 1929 to 1944. He was my grandfather. And my mother, Kay, who's going to be in the service, the 1130 service, put that picture back up again, she spent her, her childhood riding her tricycle around that little deck out there and went away to school in grade one. I tell you that to say... There was a lot of ships wrecked there, but somebody had the guts to try to build a station on there. I want to show you another picture that was even worse than that one. It's Bell Rock Lighthouse. It's, it's 11 miles off the coast of Scotland. And Bell Rock, there's only, there's, an acre, there's only an acre of rock that's covered by 20 feet of water most of the time. And, and in the early 1800s, older than, older than uh, Gannett Rock, this was uh, 1811, they built this. This is 115 feet high, but get this, it was only exposed to the air four hours a day. The rest of the time, it's under 20 feet of water. So they anchored a ship off, offside, and this guy by the name of Robert Stevenson with his crew would take their little boats and come over, and for four hours a day on the wet rocks that protruded from out of the water, they started to build a foundation for that lighthouse that's still standing, right? Why did I tell you that? Because... They had to work when the moment was opportune. They couldn't just kind of step in there and whenever they wanted. They had to do it right at the right moment. They say that when they're rolling out 
uh, sheet metal, that sheet metal will only roll out at a certain temperature. It's got to be just right. They call it the molten moment, and they can roll it out. Probably the same with wire or something. And I just want to, I go, and these guys sing. I want to remind you that, first of all, there's a powerful need to justify ourselves and squirm out of repentance. That's Lance. But secondly, there are opportune moments. There are molten moments when God comes to you and says, you need to call her. Or you need to repent of this. Or you shouldn't be doing that. That's wrong. And I, you're better than that. You need to live differently. I'm calling you to put that behind. Those are, there are moments. You can't just kind of say, I, I hear you, God, but I'll talk about that later. Right? No, 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 no. That is not how it works. There are moments when as a gift from God, the Spirit of God troubles your heart and says, hey, what about this, right? Those are precious, those are beautiful gifts from God. I know it seems hard, but man, the Spirit of God calling you to repent is the most glorious gift you could ever have. And on the other side of that are good things, beautiful things. But you've got to step into the molten moment. I encourage you to do it. I don't know what it means for you, I don't know what it means relationally. I don't know what it means in your relationship with God. You may be here and you've never repented of your sin. This would be a beautiful, beautiful day to do it. You're going to have an opportunity to pray. Let me pray for you. Lord, bless these people and all of us, Lord, from the, from the most uninitiated in what the kingdom of God is all about to the oldest, most mature saint in the crowd, God. Give us a tender heart towards you, a heart of repentance. It's beautiful in your sight. It's beautiful in our relationships, in our families, our marriages. God, everything about it is good, even though it's hard. Bless us, I pray in the name of Christ. Amen.